Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we come to God's word together. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, Lord, we do want to do so in, in humility. Lord, we recognize that this book that we have is no mere collection of human writings, but this is the word of God to his creation. And Lord, within this book is everything that we need to live this life. To live this life with joy, with peace, and with great expectation of all that is yet to come for those who are yours. And so, Lord, speak to our hearts this morning. May we be encouraged, but may, Lord, we also be challenged. Because, Lord, you have blessed us with so much. But, Father, to whom much is given, much will be required. And so, Father, just challenge us as we pray this morning. Give us open ears and hearts that are ready to receive, we ask. Lord, just take my words and use them for your glory. We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. This year we are journeying through the entire Bible. We started back in January in the book of Genesis. And we've come as far this morning as Paul's letters to the church at Philippi and the church at Colossus. These are two churches in what is today Turkey. But we're very... Um, Important in terms of the, the information that Paul gives to them because Paul actually makes the point of saying that these letters should be shared amongst the other churches. Um, and of course these letters form now what is part of the Bible, part of the New Testament and have become instruction and edification and doctrine for the church at large. So there's a lot to be seen here. There's a real benefit to us this morning. These aren't just historical documents. Uh, these are things that really are written right from Paul's heart to us. And Paul, of course, just this incredible individual that God raised up, very educated, very intelligent man, a man that had been trained in all the religion of the Jews, um, was a, an incredible Pharisee and um, he'd been taught under Gamaliel who was one of the, the leading rabbis at that time. And, but then he has this encounter with Jesus Christ and it transforms his life. And subsequently then um, the Lord uses Paul to, to write so much of what we have in the New Testament. Paul writes specifically to seven churches. Um, we'll get in the coming weeks onto the pastoral epistles where he writes to individuals, i.e. Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and so on. Um, but there's seven churches that are written to by Paul. We have Romans, of course, Corinthians, or the Corinthian church, the church at Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, which we'll be looking at this morning, uh, Colossus, and then next week we'll move into uh, the incredible letters uh, that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the first of the churches Paul actually writes to. Uh, we'll look at that in a while. But it's interesting because these letters that we're looking at this morning, along with Ephesians, which we finished with uh, last time, are classed as the prison epistles. Paul writes these from Rome, um, from prison in Rome. So after he made this appeal to Caesar, he's taken there and uh, he's under prison guard. He's kind of living in a, in a comfortable environment by the time he gets to Rome, but nevertheless, he's effectively under house arrest. Um, and these letters are written there. He's allowed visitors, and the visitors that he has, as we'll see, end up uh, carrying these letters back to these respective churches. Now it's interesting because one of the things that we read uh, when we look in the book of uh, Philippians, which we'll start with this morning, is that Paul makes this statement. In chapter 4, he says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And I think it's important to mention that these letters are written from a state of being in prison. And Paul writes these letters saying, you know, 
doesn't matter about my external circumstances. It doesn't matter what's going on. I've learned to be content. Because Paul has come to that place of realizing that life is so much more than the abundance of things that we possess. You know, we sometimes get into this kind of mindset that actually our life is is kind of made better by all of those things. And of course, there is some sort of joy and pleasure in material acquisition. But ultimately, it doesn't satisfy. You've only got to look at all the rich and the famous people who have everything, and yet clearly they have nothing. And Paul says that ultimately he's found the most important thing, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And with that comes a contentment that is way beyond anything this world knows. You know, everything that you look at in this world, uh, from a fleshly point of view, every desire that you have, you could never satisfy. You know, and in a sense, our, our sin nature will always try to push us to take more and more and more and more. I mean, people that get into drug abuse, it's never enough. They want more. People that get into alcohol, they always want more and so on. But when it comes to Jesus, Jesus does satisfy beyond anything that the world can imagine, let alone explain. As we... Again, just look at the structure uh, and the timings of these things. Um, as I said, Thessalonians was the first church written to by Paul, somewhere in around about the spring uh, of AD uh, 50. Um, the, the ones we're looking at this morning, and including Ephesus, again, written from prison, around about the summer of AD 58. Um, again, just a, a short time, within 30 years of Jesus dying on the cross. But, you know, the, the resurrection which transformed these disciples, and then that was that which set Paul in motion, trying to stop this this new religion as he saw it springing up. And of course that led then to the famous conversion on the road to Damascus for Paul himself. And so within a very short period of time now, Paul has not only gone out and planted these churches, but now he's writing to them as well. So our background for the the first of the letters we're going to look at this morning, the Philippians, uh, is part of Paul's second missionary journey. And what Paul did, he left Antioch, which would be in the home for the church during this period of time. Uh, He revisits all the churches that he planted, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and so on. And then he gets this desire to head off into Bithynia. But the Holy Spirit stops him. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your life, where, you know, as a a Christian, you feel you want to do something and suddenly the Holy Spirit checks you and you just know you can't do that. It may be you're about to say something and suddenly the Holy Spirit just kind of puts a hand over your mouth and you recognize that it was God saying, no, don't say that, don't go there, don't do this. And sometimes the Holy Spirit will work in that way in our lives. In this situation, that's exactly what happened to Paul. And the Holy Spirit says to Paul, no, you're not going there. Now, as a result of that, that evening, Paul has a vision, and he has this vision of this man from Macedonia, pleading with him, urging with him to come and help. As a result of that, Paul heads over to Troas. That's where he meets up with Dr. Luke, um, who then is with him, accompanying with the rest of his journeys. And then they sail across um, the sea there uh, to landing uh, and then they they land on the shore but then they move to Philippi which is a few miles inland Um, and that's where Paul uh, ends up planting this church uh, and is subsequently imprisoned. Now it's just interesting this is the first church in Europe and this is kind of interesting to us because had Paul not have had that vision to go to Macedonia again recorded in Acts 16 you know where would you and I be today? This is a massive moment as you read through the book of Acts. This is one of those pivotal points uh, where everything seems to change at this point. And Paul really takes on this ministry of going to the Gentiles. You see, all the places Paul had gone, he always went to the synagogues first. He always went to the Jews first. 
But it's interesting because as he gets to Philippi, there wasn't a Jewish synagogue. You needed 12 men um, to have a synagogue under the, the Jewish rules and laws. But there wasn't that many. So what the Jews did was they would meet down by the river and they'd have a time of fellowship there and so on. So Paul ends up going down there and preaching by the river uh, on the Sabbath day. Um, And again, the Jews would have been collected around. Clearly there was only a handful of them at this point. But what's interesting is there was a lady by the name of Lydia who's there. And she responds to Paul. She becomes a convert. She, she accepts Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. She realized that the Jewish scriptures had all been speaking of a Messiah who was to come. And she recognizes from Paul's teaching that Jesus really is that individual. Jesus was and is the Messiah of Israel. And she's converted. And uh, as a result of this, the church at Philippi is then born. But, as we'll look at in just a second from the, from the scriptures, but Paul delivers a girl who has a spirit of divination, and that then leads to their arrest. Let's just turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, and we're going to pick up at verse 16, and we read, And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Interesting, isn't it? This is a demonic spirit. And making this incredible declaration that these individuals are servants of God. You know, I wonder what would happen if a demonic spirit were to um, follow you around and make a declaration. What would be the declaration of your life? Would it be like this, that you are a servant of the Most High God? And that your intention is to show to people the way of salvation? It's kind of a challenge, isn't it? But this is obviously the situation here for um, for Paul and so on. And we read, and she did this many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her master saw that the hope of their gain was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. Well, they hadn't really exceedingly troubled the city. They just effectively put an end to their dishonest gain. But they say, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. You know, a lot of lots changed today. We live in a world that's telling us that the things we say are not lawful. Um, and the, the government is passing laws to make what we say not lawful. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them. This is the same Paul, by the way, that said he learned in every situation to be content. And when they had laid many stripes upon them and cast them into prison, charging the jailer uh, to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Before we just carry on, I just want to highlight, this inner prison at this time, there would have been typically the, the jail and so on, but within the jail there would have been effectively kind of like a cesspit. Um, and that's where Paul and Silas get cast, right into the lowest possible point within the prison, geographically, where all of the, the sewage and everything would find its way out of the building. And that's the kind of environment they're placed in. And I say that because... When we look at the book of Philippians as a whole, the theme we have is joy through suffering. You know, as a Christian, there'll be times that you'll struggle. There'll be times that you suffer. You know, Jesus made that great promise for us that if you are a believer, you will struggle. You will suffer persecution. Jesus did, and we will. The world does not like Christians. You know, in fact, that's not quite true. The world doesn't mind Christians, but the world doesn't like Christ. 
You know, it's all right to say you're a Christian, but if you start saying what the Bible says, all of a sudden that's very offensive to people. You see, we find that 17 times we have joy, rejoice, rejoicing occurring through just these four chapters of the book of Philippians. You see, but Paul again had been a living example of that which he's teaching the Philippians. Again, back into Acts, he's in this situation, in this dungeon with Silas chained up together. And then we read at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. I mean, this is incredible. You know, they're there in this horrible situation. The prisoners also there are listening. You know, you'd think at that point they'd be saying, God, why have you done this? We were just trying to serve you. You know, we've been faithful, we've been obedient, we've travelled so many miles. But Paul had learned in whatever situation he was in to be content. He realised that God's in charge. God's got a plan. God will do whatever he wants. It's a little bit like we read in the book of Job, that great statement of faith. Where Job says, yet though he slay me, will I trust him? doesn't matter what God does because he's in charge. God is a good God. Whatever God does is good because God's very nature is good. God cannot do anything that's not good. And so if we've entrusted our lives to him, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what the external circumstances look like because he's in control. God is still on the throne. And so we read verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. Everyone's. This is not just Paul and Silas, but all the other prisoners. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prisoners' doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing the prisoners had fled. Why would he do that? Well, because it was effectively a death sentence upon him if the prisoners escaped. And obviously he didn't want to suffer the kind of death that would be thrust upon him by the Roman authorities if these individuals escaped. So he's about to kill himself because he feels that's the best way out of this situation. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm for we are all here. Not just Paul and Silas but all the prisoners. I mean that's incredible. How do you think Paul managed to convince these prisoners who now could literally walk out of this prison to stay? Well they must have been so mesmerized by these two individuals the fact that in this situation they had this joy that they could praise God they could sing songs and they were like we're hanging around we want to see what happens here so then he called for a line and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said sirs what must I do to be saved this individual realizes that there's something so different about these individuals. They've got something he wants. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Again, the house don't get to partake of this because he believes. They also also have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Every individual has to make that choice. But you know, the beauty of salvation is it is so simple. It's so simple, it's offensive. To the natural man. The natural man wants to do things. Even the question, he says, what must I do to be saved? You know, we have this kind of mindset that we've got to actually perform some sort of task or meet some sort of rules or regulations. No, just simply believe on Jesus Christ. Believe that he is the Son of God, that he died, that he rose again. And that he's paid in full for your sin. That's it. Salvation is so simple. And so this individual, of course, comes to the Lord. And then uh, Paul and Silas, we find in the morning, are let loose. They're, they're allowed to go. 
uh, from this point. Um, but that then is this kind of situation. That's really the start of the thing that's going on in Philippi. Uh, and Paul now is writing a little later on to this church that he'd founded that's seen his example. They'd seen that even in these dire circumstances, Paul's attitude, Paul's life was such that he would trust God regardless. Chuck Misler's overview of the, the book of Philippians is simply chapter 1, Christ our life. Everything is all about Christ. Christ, our mind in chapter 2. Christ, our goal in chapter 3. And then Christ, our strength in chapter 4. A nice little breakdown that really does summarize what these chapters are about. Breaking that down in a little little bit more detail. And chapter 1 starts with Paul's greeting and praise and prayer for the church at uh, Philippi. Paul obviously was very affectionate towards these believers. Again, partly because this was probably uh, the first of the, um, the European churches that had been founded. Uh, and the time that he spent with them. Um, Paul then speaks of his current imprisonment in Rome. And also what that's going to do, the prospects, what God will do through that situation. But then he calls them in Philippi to persevere. You know, it's kind of that, and Paul often says, you know, follow my example, look at me. I mean, that's quite a bold statement. You know, not many of us would probably say, you know, follow my example. Be a Christian like I am. And yet this is exactly what Paul does. Paul's life... He, he, he wasn't perfect, and we'll see him make the statement himself that he wasn't yet there. He knew he had room to go, work to do. Well, God was doing that work in him. But there was still this attitude that, you know, he was saying to, look, follow my example. And he said, persevere. Then we see the unity through Christ's example of humility um, and sacrifice. And this again... I mean, Paul just urges them, because of what Jesus has done, to have this, this sense of humility. And uh, that in itself will bring about this unity. They're all in the same boat. None of them deserve salvation. None of us deserve salvation. But it's purely because of what Christ has done. The next kind of section really takes us in chapter 2 from verse 17 to 30. And really, Paul again just emphasizes the Christ-like example of himself. The fact that he is following Christ and saying that as such, they should also follow Christ. And then we get a warning against the false teachers uh, in chapter 3 uh, of the things that are going to come, some of those that were teaching them that they must get circumcised, they must be under the Jewish law. Paul, of course, had encountered this so much in his travels already. And so he's warning them of the kind of things they will experience. And then Paul starts to underline his own heritage, his personal achievements. But then he says, I count all of that as nothing. You know, none of that means anything to me. You know, he says, yes, doubtless I count all things but loss. All the things that he'd attained, all the certificates on the wall and so on. He says, it's, I count it as a lot, but for the um, um, excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, he says. Then he appeals to them in chapter 4 to live a disciplined life. And we'll look at that in detail in just a moment. And then finally, he kind of thanks them for the financial gifts. They, they supported Paul. They sent gifts to him. You know, they recognized what this individual had done. And Paul had already made the point we've seen in Corinthians that those that preach the gospel should live off the gospel. Uh, and it allows them to do more. And so Paul here has been able to carry on in his ministry because of the, the generous gifts that the church at Philippi had raised and sent to him. And then finally the book ends with the closing greeting. So let's just pick up some key verses as we go through. And that's from uh, the Believer's Bible Commentary, by the way, that breakdown um, by William MacDonald. So in chapter 1, opens Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. He says, grace be unto you and peace. 
from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two, you know, they're considered so often the Siamese twins of the New Testament. They're inseparable. Grace and peace. But it's interesting that you always find grace will precede peace. We can't have peace until we've known God's grace. Because real peace doesn't come through an absence of conflict or something which the world tends to see. Real peace only comes from being rightly related to God. That's real peace. And that can only be achieved through that which Christ accomplished for us. And then, of course, we see the grace. The grace that comes first, that then leads us to that peace. So, those two. But notice what we're told here. This is dual citizenship in a sense, because we have two addresses. One is in Christ, and the other one's in Philippi. And they're in both places. You see, they were abiding in Christ and they were also living in Philippi. You know, our primary address is in Christ. But we have dual citizenship. We're told that we are citizens of heaven. But we're also citizens of this world as well. And it's important to understand that both of those things apply. And all the time the Lord tarries and leaves us as we are here, that there is work to be done in our physical location, but ultimately our spiritual location is to be in Christ. He carries on and says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making requests with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day, until now. You see, they'd stood with Paul and they'd supported him, and now he's standing with them. He's praying for them. You know, this really goes back to what we were saying last time about bearing each other's burdens, Galatians 6, verse 2. And Paul's doing that. He's praying for them continually. You know, always in every prayer of mine for you, making requests with joy. They're just bringing them before the throne. And that's what we should be doing for each other. You know, again, I was encouraging you all in the, the email we sent out on uh, last Sunday. You know, try to do something practically for each other. Every single week. You know, but also make sure you pray for each other. And Paul here, really just practicing what he was preaching. Just standing with them, praying for them. And this great promise, this is one of the, 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 the wonderful promises in the New Testament. Being confident of this very thing, that he that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What a, a promise that is. That this promise that, that God has not only begun a work, but that it will be continued. I think I've shared this before, it just, just makes me smile every time. Don McClure was uh, teaching and he was going through looking at a number of the promises we have in Scripture. Um, of the, the great promises we have of all that awaits us, all that we have to, to hold on to that gives us hope right now. And at the end of the time of speaking, a lady came up to him and was just chatting to him. Uh, and clearly was quite weighed down with all the problems and burdens and so on that she'd had. And after spending an hour or so teaching about all the, the great comforts that we have that we derive from God's word, Tom McClure just said to this lady, Lady, what do you do with the promises of God? And she just looked back at him and said, I underline them in blue. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of funny, but there's this element that we do the same. Kind of we can memorize these verses, we underline them maybe in our Bibles, but do we really apply them? You know, as Jared was sharing earlier, you know, don't worry about anything, pray about everything. Do we really do that or is it something we can we kind of know the scripture? Do we really apply it? And this, be in confidence, says Paul, of this very thing, that he that has begun a good work, you know, hands up this morning, if God has begun a good work in you, yeah? Well, he's going to carry it on. He's going to carry it on. Because he's already made this commitment 
that this isn't something that you've now got to kind of carry on and do the rest. He's going to do it. And he's going to perform it until that day. The day of Jesus Christ. Not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord speaks of a very specific time that is coming. That period of of judgment that we read about through scripture. That seven years that is yet to come. Uh, Many scriptures deal with that. But this is the day of Jesus Christ. This is the Bema seat. The judgment seat of Christ. That time when we will stand before the throne and be rewarded. Again, it's building on the teaching of Galatians. Not only is Christ our salvation, he's our sanctification. That word sanctify is simply meaning to set apart. And that's the work that he's doing in us. You know, and the good thing is it is his work. It's not dependent upon us. And then from a pastoral perspective, Paul as a pastor, he says this, that you may approve things that are excellent. You know, I love this. This is the word approve really in the... And the Greek here, it just means to examine and accept something. That we should examine things and accept all the things that are good, that are excellent. And that you may be sincere, without offence, till the day of Christ. So Paul's desire was simply that they'd be getting ready for that day. And this was part of the, the joy that they had there, through the sufferings and the troubles they experienced. You know, approve is very much an intellectual, it's about your mind, it's about that examining and thinking through. Being sincere is very much to do with the heart. The, in uh, Strong's Concordance, it just simply talks about being judged by sunlight. I quite like that. The idea that as the light comes up, it reveals things that previously you wouldn't have been able to see. You know, you'll have experienced that at home if you ever do some dusting. And then the light shines through the window. And you think, well, where did that come from? You know, you suddenly see all the dust there that you thought you just kind of hoovered and dusted, and but there's so much more, isn't there? Just you know, and the sunlight reveals those things. But that's what Paul's saying here: that we should be sincere, and it should be really a kind of this. It's this heartfelt thing that we're judged by the light of God's word, really shining into our heart that reveals these things, and without offence. And that really speaks of our soul, and we have to love God with all of our mind, all our heart, all of our soul, aren't we? And this is how we should be until the day of Jesus Christ. One of the things you'll see as you look through all of Paul's letters is the reality that they were expecting Christ to come back at any moment. And that's why they wanted to get their lives right with Jesus. Because at any moment, he could be coming back and taking us home. Paul carries on. Pick up verse 21. It says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a win-win. You know, the, the people in this world struggle with the whole idea of death and quite rightly so because you know we are not designed to cope with death death was never part of god's plan for humanity not the way god's perfect will intended it of course god knew the end from the beginning he knew that adam and eve would fall he knew that we'd end up in this predicament and that christ would have to come as our savior but god didn't design us to cope with death that that was something that was introduced as a result of the fall you know people have said you know Challenging, if God is a good God, why is there suffering in the world? Well, Jesus didn't come to end the the problem with suffering. People say, if God is a good God, why is there hunger? Because Jesus didn't come to end the problem of world hunger. You know, people ask, why are there still wars if God is a good God? Well, because he didn't come to end wars per se. What he did come to do was put an end to death. And that he has done. And there's only one way to have victory over death, and that is by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. And though these bodies physically may die, we are promised an eternity with Jesus. 
if we put our trust in him. And so Paul says, for me to live, it's all about Jesus Christ. That's the reason I live. There's no other purpose in life. There's no other goal that's greater than that. Career, family, prospects, whatever those things are, they're all totally secondary. In fact, so far away that it's not even worth thinking about them. My life is about Jesus Christ, living for him. You know, if I die, even better. He says, if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what shall I choose? I, I what not? I don't know. I can't, this is a, a, I can't be a challenge here. You know, for I'm in a, a straight between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But he goes on to say, but you know, it's needful for me that I remain here now for you. You know, there may be many people among us here this morning, we may feel ourselves, you know, I just want to go. I want to go and be with the Lord. And, you know, there's nothing wrong intrinsically in that, but understand that while you are here, you are here with a mission and a purpose given to you by God. And actually, if you are left, as Paul was left, it's to be a blessing to others. Chapter 2, Paul says, If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy, that you may be like-minded. I love this. That we should. Have, this is how we should be. I was at the pastors' conference yesterday, and I was leading a session talking about doctrine and how important doctrine is. You know, we should be like-minded. People have this idea that we can read the Bible and come to any kind of conclusion we want. Well, that's not the case. You know, if, if I write something, I know what I meant to say. Well, God has written something and he knows what he meant to say and he's revealed it to us and the Bible interprets itself. We don't have to guess as to what something means. It's there. It's very clear. And so we should be like-minded. No scriptures of private interpretation, says Peter. Having the same love and being of one accord and one mind. All those things are important. Love is so important. We have to have that love for each other, but of one accord, of one mind. And then we're told, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man to his own things, but every man also on the things of others. It just again repeats in Galatians 6 too, isn't it? Bearing each other's burdens. Don't just think about yourself. Think about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about those around you. What can you do to help them? Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So Paul says, look at Jesus, if you want an example of this. He became as nothing for your sakes. And that's how you ought to be one to another. We are to learn to serve. One of the greatest lessons that we have in the New Testament of how we should be toward each other. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, even the death of the cross. But then look, wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But some will do that with Jesus as their Savior. And it will be a joy and a privilege and a blessing. But some will do that with Jesus as their judge. And that is utterly terrifying. To think that people have chosen to reject Jesus Christ, given the overwhelming evidence You know, evidence is never enough. Jesus makes that clear. We have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Evidence was never the problem. 
It was the issue of the heart. And there are people that have hardened their hearts that just do not want to know. But every time one day will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We also read of this kind of code of conduct that we're given. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That's kind of one of those little uh, posters you want to have in a church somewhere, isn't it? You know, that everything we should do, we should do without murmuring, without disputing. You know, have that up at home somewhere. You know, and when your children murmur and dispute, you can point to that. When you do that, they'll point to it as well. But that's how we should be, without murmurings and disputings. One of the big problems with the children of Israel was they were forever murmuring, complaining about this, complaining about that. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Just a few things from chapter 3. Paul makes a point, as I said this earlier really, that the things that he once counted gain, he now counts loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's incredible what he says. He says he counts them as dung. His great achievements. And he'd become a very respected individual. And he says, you know what? Compared to my relationship with Christ, that means absolutely nothing. He says, I want to win Christ. That's what I want. That's the ultimate goal. That's the real prize. He says, and being found in him, not having my own righteousness, because, of course, by our own efforts, by the law, by trying to do good things, we can never be right with God. It's only on the basis of faith. And Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What is that? Well, we talked about this last year, we, we, around about Easter time last year. We talked about the power of the resurrection, and it's that power to transform you. When you realize the most amazing fact of history is that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. That even today there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. It transforms you. People have set out trying to prove it to be not true. They've tried to say, well, those things couldn't have taken place. Everybody that I know of that's ever set out to try and disprove the resurrection has become a Christian. And there are numerous examples you can give of people that have really truly gone into the evidence And they've come to that place of realising Jesus rose again. He is God. He is who he said he is. And Paul says, if by any means I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. This is what we're looking forward to. This new life where we're going to get a new body. Corinthians 15 deals with that. Not as though I'd already attained. Paul says, I've not already got there. Either we're already perfect. But I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended of Christ Jesus. You know, saying that that God has got his hand on me, he's apprehended me. And the reason he's done it is that I may take hold of the things that he's got for me. And he says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Some translations translate as the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's the same thing. It's that moment when we are called up to meet him in the air. That is the goal. That is the prize. That's when all the toil and the problems of this life come to an end for us. And we are finally with Christ for eternity. That is the goal. That's the prize. In chapter 4, again, Jared shared this verse with you in the subsequent verses. But quite simply, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Not rejoice in the Lord when things are going well. But rejoice in the Lord always. We sang that wonderful song this morning, The Garments of Praise. 
You know, and we should be putting on the garments of praise, you know, for the spirit of heaviness. When we feel dejected, low, depressed, and we do as Christians feel depressed. There are times when everything seems too much and we feel like giving up. It was quite refreshing yesterday at the pastor's conference to hear one of the sessions just talking about the challenges pastors face. And it's quite nice to hear a lot of the pastors say, you know, that at times they just feel like quitting, giving up. And I'm thinking, wow, it's nice to hear that. It's nice to hear that other people go through those emotions and feelings. But you know what? We come back to that same point of, but God is in control. And Satan would love us to believe the lies. He would love us to believe that this isn't going anywhere. I'm not achieving anything. I'm not getting what I wanted. I'm not just talking pastorally. I'm talking about us as individuals You know, in our lives. It's so easy to believe that lie that what's the point of trying? Well, that's Satan's lie. God says, rejoice always, all the time, never stop. Philippians 4.13, a great verse to commit to memory. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, you want to tag along with that. Without him, we can do nothing. Because they're going to go together. Without him, we can do nothing. But in Christ, we can do all things. What an incredible statement. And then the book concludes. As Paul has been thanking them for the generosity and the things that he has given, the things that the church at Philippi have given him. He says, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. You know, we don't ever see Paul asking for things, Paul begging for money. You know, sadly we see on Christian television, so-called Christian television, you know, people standing there with their nice suits and their Rolex watches and their jet parked out the back, you know, saying, send in your money for our ministry, how much we need your money. You know, and if you send in, you know, Twenty dollars, whatever. We'll give you a miracle wallet. I think if you've got a miracle wallet, why do you need my money? You know, and it, it, we see so much of those things. And and you know, I, I, I'm very much. I, I love something that Chuck Misler once said. And he said, you know, these ministries that go around begging for money. He said, if God's not blessing them, I don't see why I should. And I think there's something in that. You know, God, if He has established a ministry, if He wanted to succeed, if it's where He wanted to be, then God will bless it. God will never let it struggle or have a real problem. Sometimes God allows us to go through trials that we trust Him, of course. And as Paul says here, God shall supply all your need according to His riches. You know, we're told He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God's got no problem in terms of providing that which we need. So we don't need to worry. And God always does provide that which we need. Now unto God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that concludes Philippians. So as we just look at Colossians. Colossians incredible book. It's been said that Colossians is perhaps the most Christ-centered book in the Bible. In it Paul stresses the preeminence of the person of Christ. And the completeness of the salvation he provides. It's kind of a statement isn't it? That this book perhaps the most Christ-centered book in the Bible. And they all speak of Jesus. It's written by Paul, as we've already said, from this prison in Rome. And um, whilst he was there, he met a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus, who belonged to this slave owner, this master by the name of Philemon, who was one of the leaders of the church of Coloss. Well, Paul leads this individual, Onesimus, to Christ, and then he writes to Philemon, asking his friend to forgive Onesimus and receive him back as a brother in Christ. And that's the background to the letter to Philemon, which we'll look at uh, in the weeks ahead. <clears throat> Now, at the same time, there was another individual, Ephraphus, who shows up in Rome, and he seemingly could be the one who founded the church at Colossus. Paul doesn't seem founded this church, 
Um, but Ephrathus uh, shows up, he needs Paul's help, there's some issues. Um, he brings this report saying that there were some new doctrines that are being taught there, and they're invading the church and creating problems, and he's asking Paul, what should we do? And Paul then writes to the church in Colossus in response to the Gnostics. The Gnostics just simply mean those that had this perceived knowledge, this understanding. And of course they were denying that Jesus was really the Christ, the, the anointed one, the Messiah. Um, so Ephrathus remains with Paul in Rome. Anesimus uh, and Tychius uh, carry Paul's epistles back to their various destinations. Uh, so these three churches, again, that we mentioned that Paul writes to while he's in prison here. So again, just a brief overview, the first part of the first chapter really is just an introduction, and then Paul really emphasizes the preeminence of Christ, who Christ really is, and then the freedom that we have in Christ. He then speaks of the position of the believer, the practice of the believer, and then finally we get to the conclusion at the end of chapter 4. Just another four chapter little letters, not a huge amount of text, but so much information. The first three uh, sections really, uh, up to the end of uh, chapter Two are doctrinal. The, the next section really is practical. So the first part is giving us what we need to know, the facts, the truth about these things. But then it's practical lessons, the way we should live and so on. So that first section really is underlining what Christ did for us. And the second section, what Christ does through us. There's a good, kind of good way of understanding the breakdown here. Now, one thing that Paul talks about, about the, the Christians here, is the way they've grown in their, their Christian faith. They were faithful. They were loving, they were full of hope, they were grounded in the word, they were bearing fruit, and they were strong. That sounds like a pretty good church, doesn't it? And so, the question we can ask is, what was their secret? What was it that allowed them to do this? Well, simply it was their focus. And we see right throughout this, that they had this focus on that which was to come. Is The reality of the future, of what God had promised, that gave purpose to the present. So let's just again look at some of the key verses. Now Paul starts and says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Now a number of his letters, he writes this in there. But it's just an important point to just highlight and mention. We are who we are by the will of God, combined with our obedience to his calling. But if we obey him, if we're obedient to his calling, then we are who we are by the will of God. You know, there's a lot that's made, you know, particularly in this country, but, you know, around the world really of ordination and people who are ordained well the only one who ordains is God not man man doesn't have the right to ordain it's God who ordains we are who we are by the will of God and God will never act to violate our free will if we don't want to be the person that God wants us to be well God won't violate our free will we'll just miss out Psalm thirty-seven twenty-three says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord And Proverbs 3, verse 4 and 5, we're told there that he shall direct your paths. So, picking up verse 3, We give thanks to God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. See again, that focus of what was to come. Whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Paul had already communicated these things. Clearly they become aware of them. Paul making mention that they've heard these things. This is the basis of their life. The hope of that which is laid up for them in heaven. Really the idea is because of, literally. Um, saying that you know, because, all these things because of the hope. 
that expectation, that confidence you have. And again, that word laid up, literally stored away. And we can reference Matthew chapter 6 and so on. And we've talked already quite a bit about these things. Which is come unto you as it is in all the world and bringing forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. Again, speaking of the fruit that we produced in the lives of believers, their confident expectation of that which was stored in heaven as revealed in God's word and things that they'd already heard was motivating them to bring forth good fruit, good works. And of course, Matthew speaks of this treasure in heaven, and we've looked quite a lot about rewards and so on in recent studies. So, just a quick question though, is that, is it symbolic treasure? Well, just think about that. You know, is it something tangible? You can't have a symbolic reward. It can't be symbolic. It, you, know, you can't have a symbolic reward. It's either a reward or it isn't. And so often in the New Testament, we're promised these rewards for our, the way we live, for the good works, for the fruit that we bear. Again, it's a subject we've covered quite a lot recently, so we'll move on. Really, we've got our job description laid out for us, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Um, I think this is great. It just tells us what we should be like, what we should be doing. It says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be, here we go, number one, filled with the knowledge of his will. So we should know what God's will is, both in our own life and in the overall scheme of things in the world. We should understand what's going on. Christians shouldn't be ones that are going around going, oh, I don't know what's going on in the world. I don't understand all this. What's, all the, what's the government doing? All these laws that are being passed. And, you know, well, we should know God's will. We should recognize. You know, every time you pray, thy kingdom come, you're praying for all the events in the world that we see unfolding to unfold. Because that is God's will. We see that God will allow these things to happen. And it's going to get far worse than it is now. If you look at the beginning of the book of Revelation, from chapter uh, 6 onwards, you see how bad things are going to get. But when you pray, thy kingdom come, you're praying that God will fulfill his word in those things. So the first thing, that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will, but in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Not in a way that causes us to panic or anything else, but we have the wisdom to accompany the knowledge. So important. And spiritual understanding that we understand things from a spiritual perspective so that's really the first thing on our on our job description and then that you might walk worthy of the lord paul says in corinthians that we're to be ambassadors an ambassador is somebody who represents their king to a foreign realm and that's exactly what we're doing we're representing our king jesus christ in a foreign realm and we are always on duty up at the Christian Resources Exhibition this year, I think I may have mentioned it, there, were, there was a t-shirt stand. They had a load of t-shirts up there. Uh, off-duty pastor, off-duty minister, and those kind of things. Supposedly it was supposed to be funny. We're never off-duty. I mean, look, God doesn't take any time off from you, thankfully. You know, we don't take any time off from being his. And we're told that we should walk worthy of the Lord. I mean, that's quite a statement. But it means everything you do, not just when you're around other people, but when you're on your own, when nobody gets to see, when kind of those Joseph moments wouldn't really matter, nobody would know it. Oh, but it does because God sees. We're to walk worthy of the Lord, unto all pleasing. And then we're to be fruitful in every good work. So really that's our third thing, that we're to be fruitful in every good work. Those good works, that's what the fruit is. And then the last thing there, increasing in the knowledge of God. 
We should continue to be wanting to know more and learn of God. Then, I'm not sure where we'll get to, isn't it about number five now? Strengthen with all might, according to his glorious power. You know, you're not strengthened by might according to your own determination. But you're strengthened by, with all might according to his glorious power. And what that's going to do unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. You know, when you're strengthened with God's might, you will have the patience and the ability to endure whatever with joyfulness. And if you're struggling in any of those areas, we need to pray that God would strengthen us with that might. It's freely available for us. Giving thanks unto the Father. And this is another thing. Point six, I think, probably we got to. Giving thanks unto the Father. We are to do that, continually thanking him, which has made us meet, or made us suitable to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. We were talking about this word partakers of the Bible study on Thursday night, because this comes up in Hebrews as well, this idea. I mean, God has made us eligible to be partakers, to join in, to have something that we didn't earn, we didn't deserve, of the inheritance of the saints. You know, people are aware of the whole idea of inheritance. When somebody dies, that which is theirs gets passed on and so on. We see it from a human perspective. We're talking about God's inheritance. The inheritance that comes down, Jesus died for us. And as a result of his resurrection, the new life we have, we have become partakers of the inheritance. There is something yet to be given to us. And we've just given this conclusion. Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. A great few verses there. Again, that's how we should live. That's our job description. We're also told in Colossians 1, a very familiar portion, that he's the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things. By him all things were created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things consist, literally are held together, even down to the atomic level. You know, it's still a mystery to scientists how atoms are actually held together. You have negatively charged particles and positively charged particles and, you know, the, I, what you should have is an atom blowing apart, but it's held together. One of the, the phrases that's often used is atomic glue, which is simply a way the, of scientists saying, I have no idea whatsoever, because they don't know. Everything at an atomic level is held together in a way that we cannot understand. But this verse tells us that God himself, Jesus Christ, is holding all things together. Peter tells us there will come a time where he's going to let it all fly apart. It's all going to be loosened. But he's the creator of all things. You know, and we live in a world that is just riddled with this absolute ridiculous lie of evolution. There is no scientific basis for it whatsoever. And as I shared earlier, you know, even things that have been discredited for over a hundred years are still being put forward as fact because they are that desperate to grab anything they can to give some sort of credibility to their hopeless theory. No, God is the creator. He's the sustainer. In chapter 2, we're just told of the fact that we were dead in sins. Very similar to the the, the type of idea that Paul shares in Ephesians. That we were dead in sins. But that has all been washed away. Our, Our trespass is forgiven. And then verse 14 says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. You know, the law had a whole load of things listed that you'd broken. God's righteous standard. 
and you'd not met it. In fact, you could just take the Ten Commandments that says you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't commit adultery, which Jesus amplifies and says, even if you look lustfully, you're as guilty as if you'd actually committed an act. And then you shouldn't murder. And Jesus says, even if you look with hatred, you're as guilty. So all of those things, we know in our hearts we're guilty of those things. Well, what Jesus does, he takes this list, and typically a Roman Roman prisoner would have this list written out of all the things they'd done. It would be nailed on to the prison door. And anybody could walk past at any time, and they could see the crimes that you'd committed. Well, Jesus takes our list, all the things you've done. Every thought, every word, every deed that you've done that was displeasing to a holy God. Jesus has taken that list and it was nailed to the cross and he paid for it in full. And we have that great statement on the cross where Jesus says, To tell us I paid in full. And effectively that's now stamped with a great big red stamp, effectively in the blood of Christ, saying paid in full. And you're kind of given that little certificate back, you can take that at anybody that challenges you. You can say, no, my sin is paid in full. Jesus has paid it all. And we're told that not only that, but he spoiled principalities and powers. I mean, Jesus didn't just win the victory. He absolutely annihilated anything, not only the enemy had done, but could do in the future. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. That's our saviour. And then Paul goes on and just says... Don't let anyone judge you, therefore, in regard to meat or drink or the respect of a holy day, a feast day, that type of thing, the new moons or the Sabbaths. You know, people under the law get very caught up into their religious things, the practices they should keep and so on. Paul says, don't let anybody judge you in regard to those things. You're free. It's been paid in full. It's all dealt with. It's all done. Nobody can demand anything of you anymore. But he says, actually, by the way, you know, all of those things are just a shadow. The, the, the substance, the, fulfill, the fulfillment of all those things is in Jesus Christ. And all the feasts that we have recorded in the Bible, particularly, are just shadows of something greater. Namely, speaking of Jesus. Now, we're kind of pretty much out of time. So what I'll do quickly is just tell you what I would have said if we had the time. The, the, the feasts we have in the Old Testament, they've got Passover, unleavened bread, and the feast of first fruits. They're fulfilled in the fact that Christ died. The model of the Passover was all pointing to Christ's death. This perfect lamb, this substitute lamb, the blood was shed. A lamb without blemish, taken on the tenth day, slain on the fourteenth, just as Jesus was taken on the tenth day, and then on the fourteenth day of the month he was slain. And the unleavened bread, feast of unleavened bread. Jesus speaks of this grain of wheat being put into the ground. Unless it dies, unless it's buried, it doesn't bring forth new life. Speaking of the death of Christ, the burial. And then the Feast of First Fruits. On the Feast of First Fruits, Jesus rose from the dead. Those feasts all speak of Christ's death, burial and resurrection. We've then got the Feast of Weeks or Harvest or you and I know as Pentecost. That we see a fulfilment in Pentecost itself. We've then got the last three feasts of Israel, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And I believe the trumpets, the feast there, because of the details were given, and I believe the book of Joel is a model that really expounds all of these for us. The trumpet judgments we read of in Revelation, the getting ready for the end of, of all things. But then the atonement is the restoration of Israel. 
And then the tabernacle speaking of the second coming when Christ will come back and tabernacle will dwell among his creation as king of kings and lord of lords. Now, I was going to take you through the feast of um, harvest because the parallels that we see there are amazing. So I'm going to leave that in the notes if you want to have a look at that uh, afterwards uh, or get uploaded this evening. You can have a look at the parallels you see in the feast of harvest looking at the birth of the church, but also the rapture of the church. And you'll see, as Paul just alludes to there, that all those feasts were looking forward to that which was to come. Okay, so just to conclude then. In chapter 3, we're just given some great practical instructions. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. What, what, what are your, the things that you're affectionate about? What are your hobbies, your pastimes? You know, there's a lot of things we could do that are not wrong, but are they helpful? Well, our affection should be on things above. And then we're told, verse 8 of chapter 3, now you also put off these things. And you're giving a list of all the things there, and I'll let you take that and look at it in your own time. The things that you should put off, those things should not be part of your life. But then we're given, in contrast, the things that you should put on. So it's kind of like, get rid of all that stuff, but now put on this stuff. And then, it's interesting, isn't it, the, the way this flows. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You know, you're not going to have the peace of God in your hearts if you don't put off those former things, the way we once lived. But if we put those things off and put on the things that we're supposed to put on, put on Jesus Christ, then we will have the peace of God in our hearts. Then we'll be able to live a life where we don't worry. And to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, you know, I was talking to one of my friends, Pastor Tony from Calvary Chapel, uh, Shoreline, North London. And he was just chatting, we were just talking yesterday, of how it's just lovely when you can just read the Bible for fun. Now, I mean, I, I was saying, one of my challenges, and I'll be absolutely honest with you, and I'm not blaming you for this as a congregation, but it's a statement of fact, that since I've been here, I've read my Bible less than any time since I was 13. Because I spent so much time preparing, I'm reading the Bible, I'm not not reading the Bible, but I said to Tony yesterday, I, just, I used to just read my Bible for fun. And it's just finding the time to do that, and I'm determined that I'm going to try and find time somewhere around all my busy schedule just to get back in, and actually Tony and I were talking about things that we're going to do together to help each other. But you know, it, it's, we get busy with things, and you know, it's good to study scripture, and I spend hours a week studying but it's not the same as just being together. It's that kind of, for want of a better expression, it's kind of a night curled up on the sofa. You know those kind of nice nights when you're in and there's nothing going on? That's the time. It's just you alone with God and you just spend time with his word. Not because you're trying to do something, achieve something or learn something. You just want to spend time with him. And we're told we should let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And the only way of doing that it's not just study. Study is important. It's great. But just let the word of God become your constant companion. And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Whatever we do. You know, it doesn't matter how trivial a task it may seem. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that changes to what we do as well. Because, you know, sometimes we do things, and it could be in ministry or whatever else, and we get to the Mary Martha situation. And sometimes it feels like a burden, and you look at other people and you think, well, they're not doing anything. But, you know, if we're doing it for him, 
It's a delight. It's a real pleasure, whatever we do. It doesn't matter how much effort. In fact, the more effort, the better, because we're just doing it for Jesus. Do it all in his name and giving thanks to God. You know, it's a privilege to serve in whatever capacity. We've just given a few practical instructions in terms of relationships. Wives, submit to your own husbands. So we've talked about this last time. This comes out in, in both Ephesians and in here. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them, we're told. And as I said before, there's no wife that would have any trouble submitting to a husband who loved her as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. That's a great plaque to have up at home, isn't it? (laughs) But this one probably ought to go with it. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Kind of lesson for dads, isn't it? How many times does uh, mum say, stop it, you're winding them up. (laughs) Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, and you know, in one sense we're all servants one way or another. Could be to an employer or whatever. But obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service, not just to try and make them happy, as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Because again, what we do, we do for God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. And just one verse I want to pull from chapter 4, which we'll conclude with. The opening verse, which simply says, Paul to this church, and after this really just follows with some greetings and so on. But he says to them, continue in prayer. And watch in the same with thanksgiving. This was a church that Paul has been made aware that there's issues questioning the deity of Christ he absolutely nails that one and makes it very clear that Christ is the Lord he is God manifest in the flesh and goes through gives us lots of practical instructions about life and everything else but concludes and says continue in prayer how important prayer is he says and watch in the same with thanksgiving really echoing that which we saw the verse that Jared shared this morning from Philippians that we should pray but once we see the answers to those prayer we should be thankful and make a point of thanking God for them. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for these books. We thank you for Paul and for his faithfulness to you. Father, help us to be faithful. Lord, help us to be worthy of the calling wherein we are called. Lord, to live our lives in such a way that demonstrates that we are so truly thankful for this incredible salvation we have in you. Father, help us as a body of believers to love each other, to care for each other, to pray for each other, to bear each other's burdens. And Father, help us to be motivated by the fact that you are soon coming back. And Lord, before long, we will be with you in eternity. And all the troubles and the the concerns of this life will be gone. Lord, thank you for the great hope we have, the great faith. Thank you, Lord, that you who have begun a good work have promised to continue it. And wherever we may be this morning, whatever the situation in our hearts, however desperate we feel looking at our own lives at times, you have still given us that promise that you have begun and you will complete. And we just thank you, Lord, for that incredible promise, that knowledge that, Lord, you've undertaken an incredible work in us because you love us. So help us to love you in return. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.